Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. Heroes are not always heroes. We're all mortal. We all make mistakes. We all have skeletons in our closet. I don't judge yours. You don't judge mine. You don't expect me to be something. I don't expect you either to be something that you cannot. And so it is with this next story. God is merciful to all men. It was June 1878 in the small town of Richmond, Missouri. It was a quiet, peaceful day until suddenly, as you know, if you live in the Midwest, and I've been there, a tornado swept down on the unsuspecting town. It ripped through the community with a devastating swath, destroying one-third of the city. The Ray Chronicle reported the news as follows, quote, language is too poor to adequately describe the desolation and ruin of Richmond. Within a few moments, a third of the town was made desolate, 500 persons made homeless, and many of them left penniless. Richmond is in grief and mourning. We have buried 12 bodies of our good citizens. Another of the local papers described the destruction this way. The havoc and desolation which then ensued are beyond our abilities to describe. Not a house is left to mark that once beautiful portion of the town, nor is there a single foundation that was not swept away. Come on a church history tour with me and I'll show you where this happened. Among those structures destroyed was the county courthouse. Witnesses later declared that books from the courthouse were found 40 miles away in the aftermath of the storm. One man lived with his family at 213 East Main Street. I went there last summer. And was among those afflicted by what would come to be called the Cyclone of 78. The paper reported that his home, a two-story, seven-room structure built in 1843, was, quote, torn to atoms. When the house across the street was destroyed by the tornado, Parts of it flew through David's house, and one of the flying timbers actually speared through him, almost taking his life. It was a fact, an astounding fact, noted throughout the community, spread far and wide, that through all of this havoc and chaos of this storm and the destruction of David's house, that there was, strangely enough, one room of David's house that was unaffected by the killer storm. The rest of the house was destroyed. Nothing, however, in this room was even disturbed. The windows were there. The entire room was intact. For the rest of his life, David Whitmer and the people of that town would assert that it was a miracle 
that it was divine providence that spared one island of a tiny room in the midst of a killer storm. What was in that room? Answer, the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon. And David, the homeowner, was David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Not long ago, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints paid several million dollars. I think $30 million was it? I can't remember. For that printer's manuscript, a valuable, so valuable artifact saved by the providence of God. The Lord once said, and I'm quoting from section 24 of the Doctrine and Covenants, require not miracles except I shall command you, except casting out devils, healing the sick, and against poisonous serpents, and against deadly poisons, and these things you shall not do except it be required of you by them who desire it. End of quote. Well, I won't claim to know completely what the Lord meant by that, but at least this. I know there is power in the priesthood and that there are miracles then and now still. I've been reading some of the material that you good people have sent me, stories from your ancestors, but even more importantly, stories from your own lives of miracles, inspirational stories that touch my heart. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing that. But this is one of those stories from back then. And if this was your grandfather, good on you. The year was 1843. This story takes place on the sailing ship Swanton, where 212 Latter-day Saints were bound from Liverpool to New Orleans, journeying eventually to Nauvoo. The president of that company was a young man who had been with the 12 in England on their mission by the name of Lorenzo Snow. It seems that on the voyage, and though I don't know all of the details from Elder Snow's journal, that as the ship Swanton sailed across, the steward, a young German man with a wife and two children at home, was injured on the voyage and the injury grew worse until finally it became clear to the captain and everyone else that this young man was going to die. This young man, the steward, was of such a disposition that he was beloved by all on board. Everyone loved this young man. And when it seemed that his time was at an end, the captain called all of the sailors to come and come into his room and bid him farewell. As each of the sailors took turns saying goodbye to the steward, there was a young woman sitting there, a Latter-day Saint, a sister Anne Martin from England, from Bedford, who was sitting by his bedside and expressed to him her wish that I, meaning Brother Snow, that Brother Snow might be called on and administered to him, and perhaps he might yet be restored. To this, 
the young man, having no other options, gave, quote, a cheerful consent. President Snow was asleep in his cabin. It was after midnight when someone came and awoke him. He said, I arose immediately and proceeded to the steward's cabin. On my way, he said, he met the first mate and others of the crew, and they told him what he was going to do. The mate answered by saying, do you think so? Do you think it's possible that that can happen? As he passed further down through the ship's passageways, he met the captain at the cabin door of the steward. The captain, the tough old sailor, was weeping. He said, I am glad you have come, Mr. Snow, though it is of no use, for it must soon be over with the steward. Do you see the circumstance? An injured young man that they've done everything they can to save his life. The world in its wisdom gives up and leaves the man for dead and turns away in tears and grief. Elder Snow, not believing that it was of no use, stepped into the cabin and I quote, I stepped into his room and sat down by his bed. His breathing was very short and seemed as one dying. He could not speak loud, but signified his wish that I should administer to him. It appeared that he had a wife and two children in Hamburg, Germany, who were dependent on him much for their support, and he seemed much troubled about them. I laid my hands upon his head, and had no sooner got through the administration than he arose up into a sitting posture, spotted his hands together, shouting his praises to the Lord for being healed. Right after that, he got up out of bed, dressed, and walked out on the deck. The next morning, Elder Snow said, everyone was astonished to see the steward alive and amazed to see that he was going about his business as usual. The sailors, these are sailors. One and all swore that it was a miracle. Well, the saints knew it to be so. And from that point forward, and I'm still quoting Elder Snow, the captain believed it firmly and felt deeply grateful and his heart became knit with ours from that time forward. He granted unto us every favor and indulgence that was in his power to bestow and constantly studied our convenience, attended all of our meetings, and bought and read our books. The mates, first and second mate, also did the same. When it was over and the ship came into port in New Orleans, Elder Snow would receive a letter sometime later indicating that the steward had been baptized, as had both of the mates, and the captain sent his promise that he too would soon be baptized and join with the saints. It's still true. What the world cannot achieve is easy for the Lord. He is, and I quote, mighty to save. And you know what, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry, but speaking personally, I'm counting on that. He's really good at his job. And sometimes I feel like he's absolutely going to have to be expert to save me because I feel like such a lost cause sometimes. 
This next story. The prophet Joseph Smith once said, every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the grand council of heaven. Foreordained in the grand council of heaven if you have a calling. Well, consider this next story. The date was June 1862. An immigrant company had come in off of the plains, and this was their first night in the valley. They were camped on the old Pioneer Square where the city county building now sits in Salt Lake City. And as usual, they did what they had done all the way across the plains. They made music, they sang, and they danced. In the company was a father and son. The father was the leader. He led the singing. And the son, who was barely 11 years old, as I recall, something like that, played a harmonium that he had strapped to his back and carried all the way across the plains. So while little Joseph played the harmonium, he just a little spit of a feller. While he played the harmonium, his father led the music and the saints sang with gusto, celebrating that they finally arrived in the valley. Sitting in the audience was President Brigham Young. Listening to all this, during the performance, during the singing, President Young was heard to exclaim, pointing at the lad, the little boy playing the little organ. He said, quote, that is our organist for the great tabernacle organ. That little boy was Joseph J. Daines. Well, in 1866, President Young asked, Joseph Ridges, who I'm sure some of you are descendants of, asked Joseph Ridges if he could build a new organ, a grand and magnificent organ for the new tabernacle that was being constructed on Temple Square. Ridges said it could be done. And he started. All the while that the organ was being built, people asked President Young, who's going to play it? And President Young's standard answer was, the Lord will provide. October 6th, 1867. The organ sounded in a public meeting for the first time accompanying what was then the beginning of the Tabernacle Choir. Sitting at the console, playing the organ, only 16 years old, young immigrant, I'm not sure if he was from England, the young immigrant, Joseph J. Danes. He was so small and so short that he had to have a block of cork strapped to his feet to reach the pedals. Joseph J. Danes would hold that post as the tabernacle organist for the duration of the 19th century. 33 years he played the organ in the tabernacle. And from that lad came so many of the beloved and cherished hymns that we have we still sing. Morburn Tabernacle Choir conductor Evan Stevens, Danish, later said of him, quote, speaking of Danes, he was without doubt one of the greatest organists of his time. And that 
from a pioneer boy who carried an organ across his back and began to entertain and play for people when he was only four years of age. Foreordained? I think so. I think so. I feel like there's just one more story, but it's it's not church history. I hope it has purpose for some of you that are listening. One of my favorite stories is about the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't completely understand, but I love this story and it speaks to my heart and is so dear to me. The Savior had been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the eastern side. I can see it in my mind's eye. One of these days, if you come with me to Israel, I'll show you where, on, up on those hills where this occurred. Jesus was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern side, mourning and grieving after receiving word that John the Baptist had been executed. During that day, people had spotted him while he was there seeking seclusion with the Twelve, and a large crowd had gathered. It was in the evening that Jesus asked the Twelve, how shall we provide food for them? And Stephen said, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient to feed this crowd. You know the story. He broke bread and broke the loaves and fishes and fed somewhere between five and 15,000 people that night. That is in itself a miracle that is astounding that is chronicled by all four of the gospel writers. But the story that speaks to me is the one that comes after. Seeing that he had such power, the people tried to take him and make him king. Jesus would have no part of it. That was not what he came for, to be an earthly king. So he sent the crowd away, and then he constrained the disciples to go back down to the shore of Galilee and get in the boats and go back across the lake toward Capernaum. Well, you know the story. The disciples set out rowing across the lake, and that part of the lake is approximately, it's the widest part, it's shaped like a heart, is about seven miles across, and it's very, very deep out there. That's the part of the lake with the inlet of the Jordan. But at any rate, he starts across the Sea of Galilee. They start across, and a storm comes up. And by somewhere between three and four o'clock in the morning, they're only halfway out across the lake rowing against the wind. And suddenly they look out across the water and they see a figure in the darkness through the wind and the clouds, the moonlight perhaps, walking across the surface of the lake. And they cried out in terror, thinking that it was a spirit. From across the waves came the voice of the Savior. It is I. Be not afraid. From inside the boat, Peter said, and you can almost hear him like he could hear it. He knew that voice, but he couldn't make him out clearly. He said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Jesus said, come. He didn't say sit down before you hurt yourself. He just said, come. And Peter, bless his soul, bailed out of the boat 
I always tell people when I'm in Israel with people, Peter was at the disposition I understand. It was ready, fire, aim. He bailed out of the boat, and you can say whatever you want, but he started walking across the water toward Jesus. He got some distance out, and when he saw the wind and the waves boisterous, he began to fear, and he began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. The Savior came forward, caught Peter by the hand, and I can just picture Peter stepping up onto the water and clinging to the master with all of his heart and soul. And Jesus whispered to him, Oh, Peter, wherefore didst thou doubt? In my mind, it's almost as if I hear Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, I brought you out here. Do you really think I was going to let you fail or drown? Trust me. When will you trust me? According to the record, they were immediately to the boat, and the boat was immediately to shore. Now forgive me, but sometimes it feels like we are caught in a storm. Everything is uncertain. We don't know when this is going to end. We don't even know how it's going to end. And even though our world's going to return to normal, what kind of normal is that going to be when it comes back? But you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's got our backs. He has got our backs. Angels round about us to bear us up. He will see us through with joy. If we will just trust him. As was said in the last conference, we have not come this far just to come this far. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.